One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles. The Battle of Dieu of 1509 and the Portuguese voyages of exploration. Part 4 of 4. If you haven't yet listened to the first three parts, now might be a good time to do so. But if you have already listened to them or would like to go ahead anyway, then let's begin. Last week I talked about the first conquests by Portugal of some coastal settlements in India, and how Portuguese ambitions were rapidly expanding. King Manuel now set his eyes on seizing control of the wealthy trade of the Indian Ocean, taking it away from the Mamluk Sultanate, perhaps even as a step to recovering Jerusalem and the Holy Land. By the year 1505, the Mamluk Sultan had become seriously concerned, and he needed to respond militarily to the threat of Portugal. Two-thirds of his forces were required to suppress internal revolts in the Arabian Peninsula, but the other third was assembled into a navy to confront the Portuguese in India. The Mamluks were not traditionally a maritime power, so possessed few ships of their own. Timber for building the ships was provided from the Black Sea by their Ottoman neighbours, but about half the shipment was intercepted by the Hospitallers of St John in Rhodes, so that only a fraction of the planned fleet could be assembled. The timber was then brought overland on camels and assembled at Suez under the supervision of Venetian shipwrights. The majority of the soldiers either came from North Africa or were Turkomans from Anatolia. In the winter of 1505, the Mamluk forces departed from Suez in twelve oak and pine Venetian style galleys. Turkish cannon forged from solid bronze were mounted fore and aft, although not the sides, where the oarsmen took up space. They sailed down the Red Sea under the command of a Kurd by the name of Hussein Muzrif. Hussein's immediate priority was to fortify the Red Sea port of Jeddah, of which he was governor. This was given priority because of the threat of a Portuguese attack on a nearby city of Jeddah, although it delayed the journey south considerably. It was not until August 1507 when the fleet finally reached Aden, where the Red Sea opens out into the Arabian Sea. In the meantime, the Portuguese commander Afonso de Albuquerque 
was busy trying to block off Arab shipping between the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. For this purpose, he conquered the island of Socotra, an island at the southern end of the Red Sea. There he built a fortress, although in the end the island turned out to be of limited value strategically. After the fall of Socotra, the main part of the Portuguese navy was required to head south to put down a rebellion in the Indian port of Cananor. Albuquerque, with just six ships, 400 men and a bare minimum of supplies, was given a brief to guard the mouth of the Red Sea, capture Muslim cargo ships and establish treaties with potential allies. Albuquerque took his brief very loosely. He and his crew made his way along the Arabian coast. There they found several small ports on the barren shores of what is today Oman, which were surprisingly wealthy thanks to their trade in dates, salt and fish, and the export of Arabian horses to the warlords of India. Here Albuquerque founded a reputation for military skill and ruthlessness, which earned him the nicknames of the Terrible, Caesar of the East, and the Lion of the Seas. His small fleet sailed into the trading ports of Oman, one after the other, aggressively demanding submission to the Portuguese crown. Some of the ports submitted meekly, others resisted and were brutally sacked to send a message to others who might be considering defying the Portuguese cannons. A string of small ports went up in flames, each time the local mosque specially targeted for destruction. The sack of Muscat, the main trading hub of the coast was especially savage. By mid-September 1507, Albuquerque and his fleet reached the mouth of the Persian Gulf, increasingly distant from their primary goal of blocking the mouth of the Red Sea. His main target was Ormuz, an immensely wealthy island port whose great wealth was derived from its strategic location between the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea. The city's chief vizier at first did not take seriously the threat of Albuquerque, with just six tattered ships, and he did not count on the Portuguese cannon. Once he realised he was completely outgunned, the vizier realised he had little choice but to agree to accept King Manuel of Portugal as his lord and to pay a hefty tribute. Albuquerque proudly boasted of his achievement in the letter back to his king. Quote, a considerable number of dead Muslims, more than 900 floated on the water, a great deal of gold, swords chased with silver, and jewels belonging to the nobles were found on them. The gathering of this booty by our men working in boats took eight days, during which some gained considerable wealth from what they found. End quote. What the Portuguese were doing was systematically shutting down all trade opportunities for Muslims and attempting to build in its place their own monopoly, where each port was required to pay taxes and tribute to the Portuguese crown. Suddenly the old order was being ripped up and swathes of the Islamic world were not only faced with economic decline but a body blow to their pride. Albuquerque had not finished with Ormuz. He insisted on building a fort there. This action caused an uprising in the city, which provoked the Portuguese captain into the use of even greater violence. Many of his own crew, including four captains, objected and tried to persuade their commander to return to blockade the Red Sea, which was anyway supposed to be the primary objective of the fleet. 
Albuquerque grew more angry, even assaulting one of his captains in a fit of rage. Finally, the crew had had enough, and a number deserted, sailing off to Cochin to tell their side of the story to Viceroy Almeida. Albuquerque was absolutely furious, but the only two ships left now had no choice but to lift the siege of Amuse. He returned to Socotra, where he found the Portuguese garrison starving. The failure to patrol the Red Sea was to prove costly, as it allowed the Mameluk fleet to slip through from the Red Sea and reach India. They arrived at the port of Dew in Gujarat in northwest India. This region was at least as important to the spice trade as the Malabar coast, where the Portuguese had focused their efforts until now. The Gujarati had grown wealthy as the middlemen between Egypt and Malacca in modern-day Malaysia, so when the Portuguese had threatened their trade, the Sultan had invited the Mamluks to help their defence. At Dieu, the fleet received a cautious reception from Malik Ayaz, the governor of the city. Malik Ayaz was a former Christian who had been enslaved and converted to Islam. He soon proved himself an extremely effective commander and quickly rose to the ranks and came to rule the city of Dieu as virtually his own fiefdom under the nominal overlordship of the Sultan of Gujarat. Ayaz was in a difficult position, but was shrewd, pragmatic and extremely cunning. Writes Roger Crowley in his book, Conquerors, How Portugal Forged the First Global Empire, the governor, quote, had a realistic idea of the balance of power at sea. His trade with the outside world, which included the export of cotton and turbans, was being paralysed by Portuguese blockades. His independence at Dieu required room for manoeuvre between two implacable forces, growing Portuguese supremacy in the Indian Ocean and Muslim determination to destroy it. He now found himself in a difficult situation, knowing that sooner or later he would receive a visit from the Franks yet aware that failure to embrace holy war would invite destruction at the hands of his powerful overlord, the Gujarati Sultan. He had already attempted secret negotiations with the viceroy, Almeida, but knew how carefully he had to play his hand. Hussein Musrif, admiral of the Mamluk fleet, joined up with Malik Ayaz, and other local Muslims to form a formidable fleet of 45 vessels with which to begin the fight back against the Portuguese. The first target was the port city of Chaul, near the modern city of Mumbai, down the coast from Dieu. There was located a small Portuguese fleet, commanded by Lorenzo de Almeida, the son of the viceroy, with a small force of eight boats and about 500 men. Hussein's aim was to ambush them, wipe them out, then tackle the Portuguese further down the coast at Calicut and Cananor. In March 1508, the Mamluk fleet fell upon Lorenzo and his men, who were caught completely unawares. The Portuguese panicked when they saw the size of the fleet bearing down on them. Hussein paused in the river mouth, waiting for Malik Ayaz's ships, which seemed to be taking their time. Malik was in fact feigning difficulties, hedging his bets and watching to see who would win the contest. Undeterred, Hussein continued on and aimed directly for the Portuguese flagship, the São Miguel, with a combination of cannon fire and arrows. The fighting was intense, with both sides striking the other numerous times and causing great damage to each other's flagships. 
As evening fell, each side retired to opposite banks on the harbour, as each side tended to its wounds and counted the costs. The advantage was with the Portuguese. The Mameluke fleet had suffered heavier casualties and were also running short of supplies of gunpowder. Hussein awaited the arrival of Malik Ayaz before launching a further attack and in the meantime was working to win the townspeople over to his side. For the moment they were staying neutral, watching to see how events turned out. Early next morning the Portuguese officers convened to decide the next steps. It was decided not to bombard the Mamluk force with cannon fire, as that would be considered cowardly, or would risk losing out on opportunities for plunder. Instead they sought glory by taking the enemy ships by storm. The San Miguel led the line and headed directly at Hussein's flagship. However, as they closed in, the wind suddenly shifted and then died, and the San Miguel was left drifting on the current. Hussein and his crew took the initiative and expertly managed to move their ships out of the way of the oncoming attack. The San Miguel missed its target and was now vulnerable to attack. Fierce fighting continued throughout the afternoon, and advantages seemed to swing back to the Portuguese, but as the evening fell on the second day of the battle, Malik Ayaz finally decided he could not delay any further and join the action, decisively tipping the battle in favour of the Muslims. The Portuguese fought bravely, but it became clear that the San Miguel had become a sitting duck. Five times the Muslims tried to leap aboard, and each time they were pushed back with heavy casualties. Finally, on the sixth attempt, they succeeded, took the ship and captured the few survivors. The Portuguese Admiral Lorenzo de Almeida died during the fighting and his body never recovered from the river. The Portuguese almost certainly could have destroyed Hussein's fleet if they had fired at distance, but their seeking of glory and booty had been their downfall and led to the loss of about 200 men, including the Viceroy's son. The Muslims at last had a victory to boast about. The Portuguese, they could show, could be defeated after all. The result, however, had been achieved at great cost. Overall, Hussein lost many men. He no longer had sufficient strength to follow up on the battle, and so returned to the port of Dieu. Malik Ayaz, meanwhile, still hedged his bets, and refused to hand over 19 Portuguese prisoners to the Egyptians. He treated them well, aware of their potential value as bargaining chips later. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For Viceroy Almeida, the destruction of the Mamluk fleet was now his priority, both for strategic reasons and to avenge the death of his son. 
For this purpose he assembled a large fleet and made his way to the port of Dieu, arriving on the 2nd of February 1509. There he found the ships of Hussein Mazrif and Malik Ayaz nestled inside the mouth of the river on which the Dieu lay, in a situation similar to that at Chaul. Hussein wanted to take the fight to the enemy early and to engage them at sea, but Malik Ayaz insisted they fight within the river, protected by shore guns and potentially with the help of the townspeople. Hussein mistrusted Malik, who he rightly thought was lukewarm about taking on the Portuguese at all, but he needed his support to have any chance of defeating the Portuguese. The Mamluks were also joined by a number of small vessels from the Zamorin of Calicut. As battle plans were drawn, Almeida made it clear to his captains of the crucial importance of the battle about to unfold. He insisted on the honour of leading the attack on Hussein's flagship in person. However, the captains objected to Almeida risking his life, and Almeida agreed instead to control the battle from the flagship, the Flor de la Mar, at the rear of the fleet. It was also decided that having learnt lessons from the Battle of Charles, there would be no unnecessary charges in search of glory. Wherever possible, the Portuguese would make best use of their superior firepower. Almeida is said to have made a stirring pre-battle speech that began as such. Dom Francisco de Almeida, Viceroy of India, by the most high and excellent Dom Manuel, my lord, I announce to all who see my letter that on this day and at this hour I am at the bar of you with all the forces that I have to give battle to a fleet of the great Turk that he has ordered, which has come from Mecca to fight and damage the faith of Christ and against the kingdom of the king, my lord. There are no records of the preparations on the Muslim ships, but it is likely that similar calls to martyrdom in the name of God were made. The Battle of Dieu began on the morning of the 3rd of February, 1509. The Portuguese had 18 ships commanded by the Viceroy with about 1,500 Portuguese soldiers and 400 local combatants from Cochin. The combined Mamluk fleet with their Indian allies comprised about 100 ships, but only 12 of these were major vessels. Many were caracks, used primarily for trade, not warfare. Both sides draped nets over their ships to hamper boarding and to allow men to throw missiles down on their enemy. The Portuguese advanced the sound of trumpets and drums and to their battle cry of Santiago. In the vanguard was the fleet's oldest ship, the Santo Espirito, to lead the way and take the first hit and fire the first shots. Early on, the ship beside Hussein was struck, causing it to keel over and sink, much to the cheering of the Portuguese. Battle was joined with carracks against carracks and galleys against galleys. There was so much smoke from the cannon fire and burning ships that at times the sun was completely blotted out. The blast of the guns was deafening, arrows whizzed through the air constantly, and battle cries rang out from each side, mixed with the screams of the dying and wounded. The general objective was to soften up an enemy target ship with cannon fire and hails of arrows, then close in and board them, using grappling hooks to pull them together. Manoeuvres were made difficult by the swift currents and strong breeze, so that some ships smashed directly into their chosen opponents, while some others made glancing blows or overshot their targets completely. 
the captain of the Santo Espirito, Nuno Vaz, was able to put his ship alongside Hussein's flagship, the key prize of the battle, and looked certain to take the ship. Yet fortunes turned when an Egyptian carrack attacked the Santo Espirito from the other side, leaving it sandwiched between two enemy ships. The Portuguese were forced to turn and defend their own vessel. Lunavaz, insufferably hot in his plate armour, lifted his throat guard to take a breath of air, and was hit by an arrow and mortally wounded. It was a critical moment, and the Portuguese were starting to waver, when a second ship, the Rey Grande, slammed into the Mamluk flagship from the other side. The crew rushed onto the ship and quickly turned the battle in their favour. Similar fights were going on throughout the field of battle. As in the earlier Battle of Chao, the efforts of Malik Ayaz and his contingent were half-hearted. Late on, Malik felt compelled to make a move and ordered his boats to sweep down on the Portuguese from behind, but they were pushed back by intense enemy firepower. The Muslims fought bravely, but it was becoming clear that they were outgunned and had far fewer experienced fighting men. One by one, their ships were captured or abandoned. Hussein's flagship eventually surrendered, by which time Hussein himself had slipped away in a small boat and ridden off. The Portuguese mercilessly slaughtered the enemy. Those who tried to flee in the water were stabbed to death so that the sea was said to go red with the blood of the dead. Almeida and his men won a crushing victory and totally annihilated the Egyptian fleet. All its ships had been sunk, captured or burned. Few lived to tell the tale. Malik Ayaz surrendered to the Portuguese, promptly returning the captives he had held since Charles, all supplied with purses stuffed with gold. He offered the unconditional surrender of due and vassalage to the King of Portugal. But what Almeida was most interested in was revenge. He demanded substantial payback from the Muslim merchants who had sponsored the fleet in due, and the surrender of all Mamluks who were sheltering in the city. Since the death of his son at the Battle of Chaon, the viceroy had become increasingly pitiless, even sadistic. Some of his Muslim captives had their hands and feet chopped off, others were burned alive, and others tied to the mouths of cannons and blasted to pieces. On his way back to Cochin, he fired volleys of heads and hands at the seaports as he passed. The outcome of the Battle of Dieu was profound. It destroyed once and for all the credibility of the Mamluk sultans and Muslim hopes that the Portuguese could be swept from the sea. The Franks were in the Indian Ocean to stay. The Portuguese were fortunate with the time of their arrival. The Mamluk Sultanate was weak and occupied with revolts in Arabia. The armies of Prince Babur, founder of the Mughal Empire, were rapidly descending from Afghanistan and about to overthrow most of the major Muslim powers in India. Persia was similarly disabled in this period, as it was being transformed from within by the Shia revolution launched by Shah Ismail. And most of the major European powers were engaged in a series of wars in Italy. But the Portuguese acted extraordinarily quickly and decisively to take advantage of this unique window of opportunity. Shortly after the Battle of Dieu, Afonso de Albuquerque took over from the position of Governor of India from Almeida. 
with a similar energy and aggression as shown in the Amman campaign, he rapidly expanded Portuguese control over shipping in the Indian Ocean. His strategy to achieve this was to seize and fortify a number of locations that commanded key communication routes. Barely three months after becoming governor, Albuquerque made his first decisive move. In 1510, he attacked and occupied Goa on the mid-west coast of India, which became the Portuguese centre for operations for the next 450 years. Goa was ideal for this purpose, an island surrounded by two wide estuaries, which could provide safe anchorage for a thousand ships, as well as affording an easy trade route into the immediate hinterland. Later, Goa became the seat of an archbishopric, and the branch of the Portuguese royal mint was established there. Also in 1510, the Portuguese seized control of Malacca from the Muslim merchants of Indonesia, which gave them control of the principal gateway from the Indian Ocean into East and Southeast Asia. Malacca was an important collection centre for cloves, nutmeg and mace from nearby spice islands. Other goods traded in Malacca including porcelain, silk and iron from China and natural products of the Malay archipelago such as sandalwood, fish and seaweed, forest products such as resin and wax and some gold and tin. In March 1513, Albuquerque made his most audacious expedition of all. In an attempt to seize control of the Red Sea, he attacked the port of Aden, but failed to take it. He then went on to complete a reconnaissance of the Red Sea, making surveys of its coast and islands, and proving it could be navigated as far as Suez. This incursion into the heartland of Islam stunned the Muslim world. Two years later, in 1515, Albuquerque conquered the trading port of Hormuz, situated on an island at the entrance of the Persian Gulf. Control of this stronghold allowed the Portuguese to acquire a large share of its very profitable customs revenues. Albuquerque was planning a new attempt on Aden when he died in December 1515. After his death, the expansion of the Portuguese Empire was pursued less aggressively, and a period of consolidation set in. India ceased to be the launchpad for the destruction of the Islamic world, and reverted to being an end in itself. Goa, Malacca and Amuz became the three so-called command ports from where all the merchants of the Indian Ocean were required to purchase licences to trade on the sea. As Barnaby Rogerson describes it in his book The Last Crusades, quote, Thus were the Portuguese, without so much as a single trade good to barter in the vast markets of the East, able to fund and police their vast new maritime empire, end quote. The role model established by the success of the Portuguese in the East would later be followed by a succession of European powers who came to compete for a share in the great wealth of the region. And so were set in motion centuries of European expansion and the forces of globalisation that shape our world today. If you enjoy this podcast would like to help support it, the best way would be to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com. By pledging $3 a month, you will also receive access to bonus material, such as extra episodes, and also receive regular episodes a week in advance and without any adverts. If interested, please visit patreon.com 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for History of Europe Kibatos podcast. A way you could help for free if you like the podcast is to give it a review on iTunes or another podcatcher. Remember, you can always get in touch on the Facebook page, at Twitter, at History Europe KB, or the blog, www.historyeurope.net, or email me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. Next week, I will make available in Patreon the first episode on the Battle of Pavia, 1525, a crucial battle in the so-called Italian Wars, where King Francis I of France fought Emperor Charles V for supremacy of the Italian peninsula. The next regular episodes will cover the Battle of Mohac of 1526, fought on a Hungarian soil between the Ottoman Turks and a combined Christian coalition. Until next time, all the best and goodbye.